You're the perfect Hunter machine. Fearless. Relentless. You've been searching for one thing your whole life. And she's down there. Make sure this is the right one. It's her. Good. Kill her. Who are you? I'm here to help you. It can be difficult for people from underdeveloped worlds to hear that their planet is not the only inhabited planet. Your Majesty, Kane was the best soldier I ever went into battle with. If she's what you say she is, we're not getting off this planet without a fight. Your Earth is a very small part of a very large industry. at somewhat of a disadvantage. Is that because he kidnapped me? Some lives will always matter more than others. This is Unwatchable, the podcast where we take a look at some of cinema's biggest flops, whether they were financial disasters or critical disasters, but we still hold dear and we discuss why these films failed and why they shouldn't be overlooked. As always, we are brought to you by Anchor FM and the Nobleman Podcast Network. I am Brent Evans, like every other time, and just like every other time as well, I'm here with Ben Norris. Uh, Some people might not like it, but hey, yes, I am here all, all the time. Here with Corey Ray Mackey. Hello, everybody. And for the first time, we have a special guest, philosophizer, great thinker, almost a doctor, Tim Smith. Hey, yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's you may not may not pick great. it up, but Tim is super keen to dive in and tell us all why <laughs> the Wachowskis' latest critical and financial disaster, Jupiter Ascending, is uh, worth watching after all. 27% on Rotten Tomatoes, $183 million at the box office, against what was originally a production budget of $135 million, but ballooned out to $200 million after subsequent test screenings and the apparent need for an additional 2,000 special effects shots. To which were included in the film. I'm not, I don't know why. The film received a special invitation only screening at Sundance, in which it was reported the cinema was half empty. A bunch of those patrons walked out during the film, and once it was finished, reactions were negative. So, reporters, patrons, and probably all of us can agree that Sundance was probably a weird choice for this movie. <laughs> yes. Um, why? So, Dr. Tim, we're going to say this is your movie. <laughs> um, I know it's one you, you feel particularly strong or good about defending probably not just as a flawed movie that's worth watching but as a genuinely good film kick things off for us what was your first experience with the film and how do you feel that's changed over time if it has uh i first saw the film probably more than five years ago and it feels like ages anyway uh and i've watched it quite a few times since but the main part of it or or aspects of it that i really enjoy is the the standard wachowski um, underlying spice that uh, they just can't seem to get away from. You know, biblical references and Satanist references and sci-fi references. It's all very interesting stuff. 
It's very interesting, yes. And yeah, you make good points about like the, I guess, the classic Wachowski spice. Probably not as thematically heavy as something like The Matrix, which I'm sure we're all going to keep comparing this movie to for obvious (laughs) reasons. But it does have similar sort of um, Christ analogies as well as, you know, bring down capitalism and all that, all that sort of stuff that you can expect from a Wachowski joint. Pretty hard to establish a, you know, a sci-fi franchise in the, in the Marvel world. And they, they failed miserably as we can see financially, but I'll open it to the floor and we, we can see how we go from there. I know all of us sort of watch this not together, but we all watched it recently for the sake of this podcast, and we all share a pretty similar opinion on it. So, what what do we feel? Let's start positive. What do we feel works about this movie, and what makes it something that's worth discussing or worth you know worth trying to revisit at least? I think what is positive about this movie ultimately for me came down to that the Wachowskis somehow convinced the studio to give them upwards of 150 to 200 million dollars to make an original <laughs> ip um and that's it moving on no um it, like but that that should be celebrated in, in a way just because i think as you said brent it is hard to get original ip off the ground in a marvel world but that, that isn't just exclusive to marvel i mean studios are just very scared of taking risks and i think that this film is also an example of why they're scared to take risks because it ultimately did flop it wasn't received very well the thing that that I did ultimately walk away thinking like that was kind of cool was the fact that it was just so kind of batshit weird and out there and wacky and you kind of have to respect the Wachowskis for at least just kind of going for it. I do generally really respect when filmmakers do just at times let their their interests and their fetishes and their like indulgences come through because sometimes it can create just really amazing cinema um, and other times it can kind of misfire in like a really you know entertaining way and I definitely am not a fan of this movie. I did like their previous film before this one Cloud Atlas because that was like kind of batshit crazy and like super ambitious but I felt was just more entertaining to watch this just kind of felt like a bit of a slog to get through a lot of the time sorry do you mean more entertained to get lost in or perhaps <laughs> both yeah kind of get I mean, lost in both of these right yeah I guess just with, with Cloud Atlas there's so many different things kind of going on that it, it, it's cross-cutting between all these things that it is easier to kind of just give yourself over to this well but I think with, with Jupiter Ascending and I'm sure that we'll go into it more later there was just some fundamental storytelling things that I just felt were really hard to get through at times or just kind of yeah a bit of a slog and I before we kind of came into the, in, um, into this <coughs> virtual space that we're in to record this podcast um, I basically said to my housemates all right, fam, I'm going to go talk shit about Jupiter Ascending for 90 minutes. Talk to you guys soon. So <laughs> that, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at with Jupiter Ascending. But I am a Wachowskis fan. The Matrix is fantastic. And I am keen to talk about this and see how we all feel about it. The one thing that came out, I came out of it was, I guess, I, it, it, I don't know if it's a good thing, but I'm always up for uniqueness and originality and stuff like that so it seemed to be that eddie redmayne's performance was the most unique and original thing out of that entire film like it did seem to be that the wachowskis were sort of like you said Corey, uh, almost like a caricature of themselves but eddie redmayne's performance was some, was like a lot of people will bag on it it's something else isn't and it? i can understand why they bag on it because you're looking at because like you juxtapose what the wachowskis doing in that in that film for me it was it was a bit uninspired 
but Redmayne's performance sort of stood out like a like a sore, almost like a sore thumb. And I've been racking my head as to why he decided to put on the performance that he did. And the only thing, and the only thing I can think of, I'm sort of diving a bit into the you know the real nitty gritty of the film. But Jupiter Ascending for me is very much about power and resource and power through resource and regeneration through that. And I felt that Eddie Redmayne's performance was sort of like the facade of power and control that gives you this sort of strong sense of character but underneath it all it's actually very weak and vulnerable it was this character that was was that was trying to be what he thought he was and what his control was giving him but realistically he was just this this paper thin being essentially yeah so that's a um that's pretty good take and my my thought on it is that i think he thought he was making a different movie than what the Wachowskis were making. For me, well, one, the movie is sort of tonally all over the place. It can't pick one. But his performance is so campy and so over the top that I feel that's what he thought the movie was going to be. Yeah. It was like not taking itself too seriously, just playing up it the camp factor. It did seem to me like it was almost like trying to be a bit childlike, almost melodramatic. It's very melodramatic. Yeah, which is Eddie, <laughs> yeah. which is Eddie Redmayne. I mean, I've not seen enough Eddie Redmayne performances to be able to really say this is like really outside of his wheelhouse as a performer from what i have seen of redmayne though i do think that he is talented but yeah this is a bit of an interesting performance by him overall but to be honest when the entire movie is so kind of batshit wacky it's almost like anything (laughs) anything kind of goes and something that that maybe i should have mentioned as well when we're talking about what is positive and while we're on the topic of performances I want to say that Channing Tatum is kind of oddly good in this movie, yeah. despite the fact he's that he's a good actor, man. Yeah, like yeah. not that I don't believe in Channing Tatum. Like after Twenty One Jump Street and uh, Twenty Two as well, I'm basically here for him. But he's good in what is like a really wacky character design, and he plays it with like sincerity. And I think that he's probably one of the best parts of the movie, even though it's filled with so many questionable choices. Well, it's a believable character, yeah. yeah like you said, in, yeah. a, in a I completely. Think- unbelievable world almost (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think channing's character really didn't have enough room to grow and express itself properly because Mm -hmm. he got sort of funneled into this standoff love interest with the main character which is also so weird (laughs) it it is very odd yeah very strange um (laughs) and then basically spent most of the movie just defending her and trying to make that human connection that he'd severed off even though obviously he was a a hybrid Mm. um in terms of redmayne uh i thought that his character fit with the overarching narrative that this movie gave primacy to and that was Mm. humans as a resource and the whole deep investment in the reincarnation philosophy and worldview that goes along with probably the thought that the human race is like this all-powerful element in the universe and that classic scene when they turn up to the fondly referred to as the home is like a a cesspit of bureaucracy. And he was a a child who had all the power in the world and could live forever and who had basically killed his mother because she wanted to sever the family's investment in that everlasting cycle of just using for their own ends rather than building on something that you 
come to love and and connect with. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting kind of looking at uh, as well how the Wachowskis sort of poached their own work a little bit, <laughs> like with the obvious yeah. comparison being the Matrix and how human beings are, of course, being farmed as like an energy resource. But what I think the Matrix does a lot better is just, I think, introducing us into the world. Yes. Go watch the opening of the Matrix again if you haven't seen it recently and just look at how much of a masterclass that that entire scene is just in terms of establishing a sense of intrigue and mystery in terms of what's happening it throws new information at you in a way that doesn't feel so completely out of left field but enough to go wow what the fuck's happening you could almost take that opening scene and if that was a short film that didn't continue past the point when the agent smashed into the telephone booth and trinity's gone and then there's this kind of talk it about there being another it would kind of work on its own like it's, it's just so well crafted uh, and then we obviously get introduced to neo and then we're kind of with him from there he is our audience surrogate and everything that we learn about this world and humanity's place within it it's all done through his eyes jupiter ascending is a lot sloppier by comparison it really stumbles i think out the gate with just kind of bringing us both into this world on board with the character especially what i would say as a whole in this film is that like in comparison to both films of the matrix and the jupiter ascending is that the matrix is a very well written for a film that is introducing us to this world to this ip whereas Jupiter mm-hmm. Ascending feels like the IP in this world has already been introduced. I, and I think that's half the reason why it didn't really work with audiences is that they didn't have anything to recognise. Sometimes yeah, like, I think, like, though, that this film wasn't made for a lay audience, that it, it seemed to be aiming at like an ode to a particular group that's in the know that can see certain symbols and follow certain narratives played to a different frequency between people who come Mm. in and don't really look at the esoteric elements of our society and i think that's why it feels like it's just jumps in with really no introduction because they're assuming that the people that they made the movie for already have that introduction it does certainly feel kind of quite niche in a way if we Compared directly to The Matrix, it's sort of the ultimate example of show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. As you said, Corey, Neo as an audience surrogate, and the way the exposition is done, I mean, there's it is talky in parts, but it's still a lot of show, don't tell as well. Mm-hmm. So Neo's learning about the world because he's learning to become a superhero, yep. basically. Yeah. And he's being shown ah. and being told why why that's important. Yep. Whereas we look at Jupiter Ascending and it's, yeah, Mila Kunis's. We'll get into her. We'll touch on her performance a bit later as well. But so I have some things her, to say about that. Her, <laughs> yeah, so do I. I think I read that her character asks 143 questions or something. Wow, it's a lot of questioning. <laughs> she really asks a lot in this movie. Yeah, she seems to lack a bit of agency and sort of serves as as a surrogate in a way, but not in a way where she feels like a strong character on her own. On Tim's point of, you know, they're sort of making it for a, a niche audience or like a specific audience, what sort of worked about The Matrix was people who can see those themes have seen them. Mm-hmm. And the film also works for those who don't want to look that far into it so they can pick up the obvious. But then, I mean, we're, people are still analysing it now. Yeah. Almost, what, it is 20 years, 21 years later. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. fact that people are still finding different stories that the Wachowskis were telling in that as well as it being super accessible just as like a it's hard to say it's a thrill ride but it does become one. Oh, absolutely yeah the way the way everyone interacts feels super natural feel 
supernatural as in <laughs> natural, not, not supernatural. It's a real ghostly like really natural the movie. Yeah, it's a ghostly. Yeah, Very it's, paranormal. It's ghost yeah, it feels natural. We don't feel like Neo's just asking a million questions because we don't know what's going on. People are explaining to him like why we need you to be a superhero and it, everything makes sense. Yeah, I think Whereas, it's because like there's a clear ob- ob- objective in this movie of like what is at stake and what the characters are trying to achieve, which is ultimately freedom yeah. from these machines to not be slaves. Tyranny, and that's, basically. Yeah. And that's kind of set up yeah. straight away. And it's also like an underlying thing that like Neo is already feeling before he's thrust into the main story as well, where he feels like a slave yeah, to the machine true. in a way. And then oh, it turns out he, well, they literally yeah, are, I suppose. So. <laughs> you can see M- Mila's... Um, character does show that it's very subtle though um you can see parallels between neo and her (laughs) in terms of um her like desire for a telescope even though it was like there was the same as her father's it's her curiosity to look out into space and see you know what is there more to life than being locked into the toilet cleaning and, and the getting up at 5am and basically like from what i picked up is she's this person who's unhappy with the life that she's got which is probably like 90 percent of people but she's either too lazy or feel she lacks the agency to to do anything about it and then as we sort of see all of that never really comes to a head until the end that's a huge problem with that character for me yeah she's not making many choices neither did neo really he makes a big choice he makes a big choice in act one and that's to take the red pill that it's a character choice whereas jupiter is kind of just dragged along through the story is it really a choice though really would you pick who would pick the blue pill cypher cypher would pick the blue pill in that movie he says this later on but like at the same time you can still point to that as as being like that's the call to adventure and you know the matrix does follow that, that hero's journey quite well obviously and i can talk about both the comparing Jupiter Ascending to The Matrix, but you can also look at comparing this movie to Star Wars as well in terms of how that sets up a new world and sets up Luke as someone who feels very just stuck in his life as this farm boy. And one does it incredibly well and the other is Jupiter Ascending. Um, And I remembered us talking about voiceover in our um, Dread episode and why the voiceover at the beginning of that movie just works. And the reason why I don't think it works in this film is that she's kind of just telling us stuff that we're seeing, but it's not actually being dramatized as well. Like she's just, she's talking about things that we're not being shown. We're not seeing this conflict. We're just being told it. Whereas in Dread... He's simply just telling us about the world in the same way that a Star Wars opening crawl is establishing what kind of galaxy we're in and and what's happening before we're thrust into the main story. In Jupiter Ascending, the the voiceover is talking about her dad and her mom and then we see a murder take place on screen that she wasn't present for because she was, you know, in the womb. And this murder doesn't play into the main story at all other than she's just with her mother. It doesn't seem to inform any psychology in terms of really what she's yearning for outside of, I want a telescope like my dad. It's not like, you know, Bruce Wayne seeing his mother and father get murdered in the street and that informing him moving forward as a character to become Batman. You know, it, it happens and it just kind of moves on and we don't really know why we really saw this. And I think I would have liked to have seen that 
actually come into play a little bit more in the movie, whether it's having a sense of abandonment and that really informing her character, but it never really comes to fruition in any meaningful way. If you do want to continue the direct Star Wars reference, mm-hmm. you look at Luke, who at, at this stage in the movie, his impression was his father was a great Jedi who was murdered in the Clone Wars. And that's sort of why he feels he doesn't belong. All of those choices, as well as what he finds out, inform what happens to Luke going forward, like you said, Corey. Whereas with Jupiter, none of it is important other than telescope and the name where they got the name Jupiter from. Yeah, and even that desire for the telescope just feels... I don't know, it just doesn't seem to click into the rest of the character at all in terms of I don't get a strong sense of what she really wants other than her saying, I hate my life, like twice in that little sequence at the beginning of the movie. But with Luke, we kind of get a very clear idea that he wants to go to this academy. He wants to leave. We we can relate to that and we get a sense of really what he's after. Whereas with Jupiter, outside of her being like, I hate my life, we don't really know what she wants. That is a very natural, I guess, approach to looking at someone from the inside out uh, these days particularly because often people don't know what they want uh, for sure and and or where they're going or what they're doing uh and they feel like they're caught up like kind of like an ant in a colony where they just blend in and i I get what you're saying i i agree but i feel like the narrative was still there it just wasn't it was intentionally not the priority of this film the priority was the broader narrative the the broader expression of like how grand uh these bloodlines are and how powerful and 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 all of that just they wanted to get her out of the way they had to have a main character because the audience had to focus somewhere (laughs) but they just didn't really care a whole lot about where she, like her purpose and and mm. where she felt she was at they they just needed them to uh, people to relate to the fact that she felt lost i think that yeah anytime a film has like an audience surrogate character that does feel like the filmmakers don't care about it the film suffers so much or if they are just there to be someone to ask lots and lots of questions you can really feel that and you don't care about the character and When you don't care about the character, then it's kind of hard to care about the story moving forward. So if I don't really care about even just like one person in the movie, then it's hard for me to care about a lot of the the larger story, I guess, mechanics um, at place. And especially if you're looking at one of the Wachowski's other films, um, having a character that that also did feel lost, like with with Neo, we don't really get a strong sense of this is kind of what he is clearly after in the same way that Luke does, but he kind of makes more actions or he's he's given two choices and he's like, either you can stay in this room and get arrested by the agents or you can listen to me and get out while you can and so he makes a clear choice and so we as an audience can immediately connect onto and project ourselves onto neo and say what would we do in this situation but with jupiter we we never really get a strong sense of that and because we don't really care about the characters we're then also thrust into these big world building introductions without her like at this point in the movie you're just kind of like trying to settle in and get a a handle on this world but the film kind of just thrusts you in very quickly without doing a lot of that I think important introductory work with with the characters and so from like a narrative perspective if we're just breaking down like plot story progression character progression it really stumbles even if the world building around it and the ideas around it are interesting but the the, the interesting other interesting parallel there is from 
a planet which has just been harvested to a medical facility where eggs are harvested um mm-hmm. and you know probably various other things um which is you know if you look into um human trafficking issues and organ harvesting it's quite relevant right now mm-hmm. so i, I really enjoy point, pulling yeah. out those those parallels and those things i think would be things that you would pick up on repeat viewings it's just unfortunate that this movie doesn't for me call out for repeat viewings for me to I guess, go back and to want to really bring out more of those parallels and and things like that, just because on a story level, it's not totally like enjoyable (laughs) to watch. It feels more like a dragon. I think a lot of that, I think comes down to just Jupiter as a character. And there's also just a lot of characters in this movie as well. I think it was you, Ben, earlier who said that it kind of feels like it's a bit of a sequel at times or that we're kind of coming into this world as if like we we kind of know the world already and that's exactly something that that i felt when i was kind of re-watching part of it this morning before this podcast was that it's kind of doing both of like the origin story and also what would probably be better suited for a sequel movie once you've established the movie already and the world that maybe if you just started off the film just a little bit smaller in scale just really establish jupiter as like a a strong character with like clearer objectives and then you can start like expanding more if the first film is successful but with this movie it feels like we're jumping around a lot we're getting introduced to a lot of this royal family and channing tatum and horny mila kunis because my god her performance is very very thirsty in this movie it's not quite one movie Mm. there's too many different things going on in this movie and that's where it sort of loses a bit of its narrative focus there's political intrigue family infighting on you know one side of it and then the other side of it with the majority of the time we spend with jupiter and kane that's like a you know like a totally different adventure movie and that's why the the movie feels so tonally different it almost feels like too much and there's too much exposition and you are right and i'm not surprised brent that her character does ask around 146 questions in the movie because again i rewatched about the first 20 minutes and it's a lot of questions it's a lot of exposition uh this is earth's placement in the world this is what i am this is that like it's just it's a lot and none of it is dramatized in a really interesting way whereas say in the matrix when neo says i know kung fu morpheus then leans down that very iconic way and goes show me and then we cut to this entire sequence where we see him both showing yes i do know kung fu but also him learning how to actually master this ability in the world of the matrix where nothing is real it's compelling to watch as opposed to just two characters talking and revealing information through just this big exposition dump i think what is the main difference there is that for jupiter her value to the movie is her blood and Mm -hmm. not really who she is and then you've got in the matrix you've got the jesus story where you have to go through the whole drama of figuring out who you are and what you can do and what do you know and how do you know it and people are there to help you along and so it feels a lot better as an audience member to to follow that narrative rather than just be thrown into something where you just assumed because the bees fly out when you flop your arms around (laughs) you know you're a great character you're a great person and i think 
everyone that watched it felt just as lost as as uh, Mila Kunis was trying to make something out of that performance. Like you said, Neo's really important to what's happening and he feels really important and everyone around him is, you know, you're important. Whereas, like Tim said, Jupiter is not important, it's just her blood. Mm. So if she's not important to the movie, then she's not important to us. So we don't care what happens to her. And there's no great sacrifice. Yeah. There's no there's no sacrifice. She's just like it's basically do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill and then Neo just takes the blue pill. He's like, Okay, cool. So <laughs> feels like that there's no sacrifice at the end. She just goes back to being normal and ultimately has no impact on what these people are doing harvesting people. They're just not harvesting Earth. But there's still all these other planets that and life forms that they're fighting over to harvest for life or time which if she does embrace her destiny as a queen and someone who's important she could fight to end that which we as an audience feel is an injustice and i'm sure well she does as well because she fights to say no you can't have earth okay i'm going now bye (laughs) and it's just sort of it's sort of done yeah and it's her family too that pushes her to risk it all you know in that scene where redmayne's got her on on his base in the eye of the storm and he's going to save her family from his own bloody dastardly deed if she gives up the the crown but she decides that you know her family alone isn't enough isn't valuable enough to like give up every life i guess there is some justice there there's a sense that the audience can relate to like uh, a very hard decision but it's still not, it's nowhere near me- meaningful enough for it to make the film, you know, something very memorable. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up as well, Tim, because like that was something where, because we don't really feel strongly attached to her family in any kind of meaningful way, like that, that could have really had or been a big turning point in the story or just like, like a big emotional part of the journey but because we don't ever really grow attached to them in any way because they're not really part of the story outside of just kind of being like like a bit of an obstacle at the beginning it doesn't really land with a great deal of impact i think when we get to that part in the film when it should and it does just function just because we are human beings and we're empathetic and of course you would do whatever you can for your family but you think about what it could have been like how much stronger it um it could have been as a um a story beat for her to be making that choice to value her family over potentially billions of other people the performances in this uh, are a strange one too so there's we've touched on eddie who is just like the camp king there's no there's no scenery that is left <laughs> by the time by the time eddie redmayne leaves the screen that's the best way to put it (laughs) i would love to have known i would love to have known the conversations that would have occurred between redmayne and the wachowskis if there were any at all Mm. yeah so that's the point i was going to get to is i'm not sure if it's because of what i said earlier he thought he was making a different movie Mm. or if the wachowskis were very very interested in the the visual element and sort of just had 100 percent faith in their actors and just let them let them do whatever they want as well as the the really heavy-handed dialogue as well (laughs) he's a complete contrast from mila kunis who is like basically a log with eyes in this movie whoa it's (laughs) brent's bombshell this means she looks better than a log with eyes but you know (laughs) Um, yeah i mean on on her performance we should talk about just that scene where she just starts to just you know she approaches Kane and just starts macking on him. 
I mean, look, it's Channing Tatum. So, like, I'm not gonna, like, you know, I get it. We we, we all get the thirst. But also, <laughs> it's just a really... It's it, it it felt very out of the blue. And it's not that I don't think that Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis don't have, like, any chemistry at all. But the film kind of didn't do enough to really have that be a believable romance and, and love story, for one. So when she does come on to him it's really just like wow this is like a really thirsty movie all of a sudden i'm inclined to disagree a bit because obviously you can see that she's looking for something outside of her own life and then suddenly this muscle bound hunk flies <laughs> into her life and literally say oh, i mean you had me at, you had me at muscle bound. <laughs> <laughs> literally saves her from little gray aliens and and it's this epic adrenaline rush and then the first moment she really gets alone with him after she's seen this guy as a savior figure is in the in this ship I agree in the sense that it probably could have taken place in a much more romantic like moment or, or, or location and there could have been a lot better set up for it but it certainly made sense in terms of her character. You know, you spend long enough with them, you can see where it might build up, but they don't sort of dedicate enough time to making that probably more obvious as to why it would happen rather than feeling like it's just completely out of left field. All of a sudden, she she loves him now. And I feel that's probably a lot to do with the scripting, a bit to do with her performance, which is really like she doesn't give a lot that we can see when she's she basically is relying on this dialogue to communicate her performance i guess just yeah if you're looking at like building sexual tension between two characters i mean again we can just look at star wars and what they did with with han and leia and how kind of well they did that especially in empire the individual beats themselves it's not like they don't make sense or that they shouldn't be at that point in the running time of the movie but it's kind of just like the our emotional entry point into these beats doesn't really feel earned they did it way better in the matrix like the they did the dynamic between trinity and neo is even though it's unspoken for mm-hmm. most of the film and then it becomes prophecy and it becomes about love yeah. Yeah, like sure. revitalizing yeah, yeah. And, and and like rising again and, and you're believing in yourself because you've got that other person who believes in you too that's a really good point tim yeah i think the romance feels a bit more awkward as well because of those performances because as you said cory channing tatum's performance feels really subtle mm. and we don't spend a lot of time with this character Channing Tatum's character is the only one with a really strong internal conflict that we can see communicated. So we've discussed Jupiter's internal conflict, but the stakes aren't high until sort of the end when it comes down to her family, which we've Corey sort of mentioned we don't really care that much about, and we don't care too much about Jupiter either. Whereas with Kane, the the way that he portrays the character, and I guess it's his yeah, he him wanting to find that human connection that is you know severed mm. he does it well without having to say a lot yeah his performance is really subtle and it is it is impressive and i guess not fans of channing tatum might be surprised by the the subtlety that he does bring to it mm. he's an actor who flies under the radar and i think it's just because of for whatever reason the stereotype we have that if you sort of think about his filmography never applied to him mm-hmm. Un- unfair you know he's unfairly earned this sort of oh, he's a bad actor but i don't i don't think i've been unimpressed by him in a movie i think anytime 
an actor who has maybe unfairly received that pretty boy like stereotype as like it's like an actor someone who's coasting more on their good looks more than their actual talent of a movie it almost seems like that the best thing for them to do is to do a comedy to then just win back the the, the favor i think of like male audiences to be like nah this guy's all right he can make yeah. me laugh in the same way that efron did it i think with bad neighbors where it was like oh efron's kind of funny i guess he's more than just his high school musical starting point in his career and then he played ted bundy yeah exactly <laughs> and so i'm not saying that jupiter ascending is channing tatum's like ted bundy performance by any means i think he's probably got <laughs> yeah, something no. else left in him there's i think a lot of gas left in that tank for Tatum, but I did honestly think that he did a, like a good job with the script that he had. His performance matches the tone of of his particular story as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas you could say, you know, Eddie Redmayne is one hundred and fifty percent committed to what he's doing, <laughs> but it's kind of at odds with what's actually happening. It, it, do you think if they were going to do another film, they'd do all right with like a prequel with just with Channing Tatum and and Sean Bean? and explain like how he ends up like tearing the throat out of that entitled and well there won't be another film (laughs) but if there if there was i think that's probably the most interesting thing that people would want to see or just fully commit to the political bullshit (laughs) and just have a whole movie of that to which i would then say that that should have been the first film i think that the first film should have just been a simpler story really introducing jupiter into this world just and the plain and straight adventure yeah story. more of an adventure because the world is so vast and there's nothing wrong with that but i think just you have to be conscious of just the audience's capacity to like receive information while also being emotionally invested in a story and so if you really make us care about the characters and then kind of introduce us into this world the right way we will then show up for a sequel that goes deeper into that world like because you're you're emotionally involving us. We like we're curious. We might look up things online about this world on Reddit. Like there are so many franchises that have done that incredibly well. You know, where like Game of Thrones, it's like a high fantasy franchise that most people would probably might not have immediately got on board with that franchise, but it starts us off in like a really smart way where it kind of talks about magic, but we don't ever see it until much later in the story. Like it kind of gradually introduces us to this world, its characters, its history, and then by the, the time you're five episodes in or something, most people are probably hooked. And we will show up for when dragons do arrive, um, arrive. And it's not cheesy. It's not this kind of thing where just general audiences who aren't into high fantasy will kind of push back up against it because it's talked about as like real history. And Star Wars does that a lot as well, where it, it really makes it feel like this is a, a real thing that happens and everything is kind of dirty and grimy. And it feels like some shit went down before we're coming into the story of A New Hope. We don't really get that that feeling in Jupiter Ascending. Everything has, of course, a real digital sheen to it, which is obviously part of the intention with the type of world that we're looking into, which is high royalty. But I never got the sense that this was like a, you know, a real living, breathing world. And I think you can even apply that to Earth a bit as well. Like the story feels very, very claustrophobic to maybe steal a little bit of what Brent was saying about Fincher in the last episode, but in a way that I feel 
didn't really work when you're talking about a story of such a big scale like this one that's talking about humanity yeah. and human beings and mm. all of these things where it's not like I even care about the earth being harvested because you, you don't feel like anything exists. We, we we have an entire sequence where there are spaceships kind of flying around trying to shoot Channing Tatum and Millicunas and buildings are blowing up and it doesn't feel at all like anybody else in this city is paying attention. That's the point though. It's about the elite operating without with abandon, basically. I get that, but we don't see it. But um, they because do. ultimately, I think that yeah. was the point. But like at the same time, it's trying to have its cake and eat it, and saying that you know these people, the people on this planet, are human beings. Like they, you know, she chooses her family because they are people who have these full lives and everything like that. But at the same time, it has all these moments where it doesn't seem to feel like anybody in the city is like aware of anything as it's happening. It's okay for the elites to be feeling that, but it's like immediately as soon as one thing blows up above a city, the entire city would be taking notice. But it doesn't. It really just focuses on Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis flying around. Ben, did you want to drop your line about the fucking bees? Ben, I, yeah, it. I really want to talk, talk about, the about bees. this bee scene. Um, one, because first off, like you don't even have to talk about the bees themselves, but when Sean Bean is talking about the like how bees sense royalty i mm-hmm. had to pause it and laugh i'm sorry because that was just <laughs> like does that mean that the queen of england has a swarm of bees always surrounding <laughs> her at any given moment like what also the, you know the the queen the it's bees so hammy there's so, so much there's more ham the there's more ham there than a roasted pig like it's, there it is <laughs> oh. um <laughs> I will appreciate the fact that they did reference to Brazil. That scene that with all the <laughs> You stole it from me. <laughs> That's the part. I'm sorry. That's the part I love about that movie. Like it just juxtaposed. So, yeah. so irrelevant to the story. In case anyone hasn't seen Brazil. I have not. The whole Neither. Sorry. The whole bureaucracy scene where they're going through the department yep. trying to get oh, wait, yeah, this yeah, yeah, paperwork, yeah. but they need this form, yeah. but they need this form. Brazil. That was so mm-hmm. good. Um, and Gilliam does appear in the movie as well. Including a cameo by Terry yeah. Gilliam, yeah, who highlight, directed Brazil. Highlight um, of the film. If there was anything, that was, anything good that was, about the film, it was that. Yeah, completely. You could take that whole sequence out and it would make absolutely no difference to the movie, <laughs> but that's probably my favourite part. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I guess that, that brings us to the, the question people have been dying to have answered over the course of the length of this episode. <laughs> Uh, do we think this movie is unwatchable? Uh, I'm just going to say yes. I, <laughs> I'm, I, I, I would not recommend this to anyone. No. If you have a morbid curiosity for, uh, for, for, for what we have just described, sure. Otherwise, stay the hell away from this film. Just watch The Matrix. Yeah. Just watch The yeah. Matrix instead. <laughs> Look, I'll put it this way, is that when... Because I, I caught this on Netflix. Um, pretty much yeah. as soon as the credits started rolling, I immediately clicked over to the, like, the rating feature. Yeah, and thumbs up, thumbs down. It was probably the first time that I've actually watched something on Netflix and then given it a thumbs down 
um, because I didn't oh, wow. want their algorithm. I did not want their algorithm to recommend me anything like Jupiter Ascending, t- to be honest. And look, it, it honestly takes a lot for me to really call something like unwatchable, but it's just certainly not anything that I would recommend. And it's it's not something which I was even calling out to rewatch again. And the only reason why I kind of started doing that was for more preparation for this podcast. Um, and even then Refresh it just felt like more of a slog. And so, yeah, I... Again, not sure if it's unwatchable, but you can definitely watch other films in the Wachowski filmography and have a much, much better time. Well, uh, for my part, um, I would agree with you. I don't think it is unwatchable. Uh, I certainly would hold back on uh, recommending it to someone unless they were big sci-fi fans. I guess part of the reason that I got right into the film was my love for history and the uh, symbolism and and sci-fi stuff Uh, obviously you know high technology and exploring space if you like that sort of stuff then this film has got a a lot of uh, very good content for you just don't expect the uh, story to you know get you that excited all right so there you go we're um Probably, probably not divided. I think we're all pretty similar in, you know, there's there's better things out there probably telling similar stories, doing it better, especially by the, this pair of filmmakers. And as always, we like to sort of end on a on a different note, possibly more upbeat, given we've just smashed this movie for <laughs> a, good, a good while now. Yeah, we like to touch on things that we've been... We've been peeping lately, things we've been really getting into, and um, open it up to... We'll see. Tim, I'll put you on the spot, because it's your first time. Okay. Is there any anything you've been watching lately, or you've seen lately, that re- really caught you, yet you'd love to uh, spread the word on, get people, get people watching? If you're a fan of anime, I really enjoy uh, watching this series on Netflix called Baki. I think they would pronounce as Japanese, and it's a very, I mean... It's it's quite a masculine sort of anime, but it it's very well made and it's a little bit violent. So if you if you have a problem with violence, don't get into that. But uh, this one is very very well done, and it, the characters are all very interesting. There's a supreme sense of dread when it comes to these characters facing off against each other. Uh, and uh, yeah, give that a look if if you like anime. I can't remember if i've already recommended this some comedy specials uh called middle middle ditch and schwartz it's it's tom middle ditch uh from uh what's that uh silicon uh, valley uh, silicon valley thank you very much uh and ben schwartz who is it was uh, in parks and rec uh did the voice for sonic um they basically do a one hour improv show think whose line is it anyway but the one scene but it's one scene for a full hour tough oh, it's tough but they're really really good at it i i, Sounds I great. highly recommend it netflix netflix exactly there is and there is yeah there's yeah, three cool. of them and they just get progressively better i've just recently started watching um rami season two which just dropped on stan for australian listeners it's basically a show about a um young american muslim man of egyptian backgrounds essentially living in new york city from new jersey i guess navigating life in that city trying to be a good Muslim when he has sex and watches porn and is not (laughs) being a good Muslim. And it's kind of a, you know, a struggle with faith story. It's a 
story of identity and trying to find your way in the world. It's incredibly funny, humanizing, at times sad and confronting stuff. And season two, yeah, all of it just dropped yesterday on Stan. And I watched the first two episodes, which feature Mahershala Ali. So if you're a fan of him, which I don't know how you can't be because he's just incredible, um, I would highly recommend starting that show and digging into season two. I'm two episodes in and really enjoying it so far. I've been going through Netflix and I decided to watch the American Pie movies again <laughs> as, a, oh, as a fully grown man or part part way to a fully grown man just to see how well they sort of translate when you're not 15. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're obviously juvenile, but they do succeed when they when they move away from like the, the really ridiculous sexual humor <laughs> and just move into like the, yeah, the genuine like human relationship and like father-son relationship as well, which is obviously mm. like... Affects me now more than it would have when I was fifteen and didn't have a son. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a it's been interesting for sure to revisit movies like that, and I I would recommend anyone do it anyway. If there's movies that you particularly liked when you were younger, watching them again as an adult to see how well that that translates as yeah, an adult yeah, and yeah, why sure. movies like that aren't necessarily well received. Some some are well received by critics, some are panned, and it's easier to see why when you're when you're a bit more mature mm-hmm. and you've moved away from finding dick jokes hilarious <laughs> um, and look they still are but you know Rickard so it was fun having our first special guest talking about a movie which the three regulars of us aren't big fans of and that's something we've tried to avoid doing is just you know ragging on a movie for X amount of time so it was good to have someone who could appreciate it on a, on a deeper level than, than we can sure. um, so thank you for coming on Tim thanks for sharing your insight and wisdom into uh, the hot mess that is Jupiter Ascending thanks You're Tim very welcome Thanks for having me. It's been great. I'm sure we'll drag you out for another oh, one sometime maybe. soon. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> See how it goes. And um, while I very quickly want to wash my hands of Jupiter Ascending, uh, given the current climate, I'm going to go and make sure I actually wash my hands for real, like we should all be doing. So, as always, we'll sign off with wash your hands. Wash your hands. <laughs> wash those hands. Wash them. Wash them real good. Not too much though. Set it out.